Hej! Här har ni Ingemar Fast återigen, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Jag tycker nu att ni ska slå er till ro för att lyssna till det program, det samtal som gick av stapeln på internationell författarscen den 19 februari 2019. Hedersgästen bar namnet Tommy Orange, han kommer från USA och han samtalar med Hans Ola Bränner från Oslo där han är verksam vid NRK. Låt samtalet som han säger ta sin början. Welcome, I dare say, <laughs> even if I'm not Swedish. Uh, Tommy Orange, um, it's been an incredible reception to this book. Uh, Con Toybin uh, wrote in uh, the New York Times that, yes, Tommy Orange's new novel really is that good. It's been an incredible reception and the readers haven't been disappointed. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, This is your debut novel. Could you tell us a little about uh, how it started? Um, so, uh, thank you all for coming out. Um, it, it happened, the idea for it happened in a, a singular moment, the, the seed of the idea for the novel. I just found out I was going to be a father and uh, I was driving down to LA to see um, this weird uh, pianist, um, his name's Chili Gonzalez, have you heard of him? He's, a, he's somewhat more known in Europe than in America. If, when I say this in America, nobody knows who I'm talking about. But he's also a producer for Daft Punk and um, Feist, and he's just uh, has very original piano compositions. Um, There's a very intelligent audience here, so I'm sure they have. <laughs> has anybody heard of Chili Gonzalez? Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course, they have. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we were driving down to see his show and uh, just on a long stretch of highway, Highway 5 from Northern California to Southern. And um, something about becoming a father made me want to do something a little more seriously with um, with my writing. Um, I'd known for a while that I wanted to write a novel and, um, and this moment was happening. And uh, I'd been working in the, the native community in Oakland for... Um, at that point, maybe like eight years, uh, six or six to eight years, and um, and the idea just popped in in a single moment. And I, telling my wife about it, and stopped telling her about it, and started writing it because uh, I have a superstitious thing about good ideas. If you talk about them first, are sort of ruined, um, or you lose the energy. Um, so I just started furiously writing out the basic concept, which was. Um, a multi-voiced novel where all the characters uh, converge at a powwow in Oakland at the Oakland Coliseum. Um, and then um, I didn't start writing into it because I was about to become a father. Um, it was about a year later that I I went at it, um, had a full-time job, so w- woke up at five in the morning, uh, wrote for about three hours, and then after my son went to sleep... Um, And then for the first year, just wrote into it like that whenever I could. Um, and it was just uh, auditioning different voices that uh, would come to me when I when I sat down to write. And and then in five more messy years after that. Mm. So what is the connection between the work you did in Oakland for those six to eight years, as you talked about, and, and the novel? 
Um, well, I didn't grow up knowing that there was a community. Um, my dad's Cheyenne, and he grew up in Oklahoma, and we'd go back to Oklahoma to see family. And um, being native was like having a super native dad who spoke the language. And um, we had one other family that we were friends with who was native, and uh, their last name were, was the, uh, was Brown. And so <laughs> we're the oranges, and I'm like, where? how does that? Uh, I still don't know. Um, <laughs> And um, so I, I worked in this community, and I realized how many stories were there and how little that was depicted, if at all, in um, film, in, in books, uh, TV. And so just uh, wanting to... And, and also Oakland, was I didn't feel was represented either. And so um, I wanted to represent... Uh, where I come from, and I thought there's a lot of stories that, that should be told from this perspective. So um, having the experience and having all those years working in that community, um, and then you know, compounded by having a son and feeling like if you're gonna do something serious, like you're gonna be making a human being that's gonna be looking to you about how to be a human being, um, do something. Mm. But is that to say that you weren't identified as a native, so to speak, by uh, others when you were a kid, for example? Yeah, it was always a confusing thing because uh, my dad is native and my mom is white. Mm. Um, but I grew up on a a block of kids who uh, were all had two different... Um, all my good friends, next door neighbor, half Apache, half Mexican, half black, half Jewish, half black, half Italian... Um, half uh, Hawaiian, half white. Um, so Oakland is like that. There's a lot of biracial families. Um, it was always a thing to me. Uh, whatever the the ever looming question of somebody who looks ambiguously non-white, uh, what are you? Mm. Um, they asked you that. What are you? Yeah, there's yeah. been, and I've got a lot of racial slurs. Uh, wrongful racial slurs hurled at me. And what kind of did you get? Uh, Chinese, Mexican. Chinese, um, even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you? How how did you react to that? It's like a removed, frustrated thing because it's like, well, I should be mad, but you're not even calling me the right thing. <laughs> so I'm like mad for them, and mad, um, you're trying to hurt me, so I'm still mad at you. Um, you know, I got in like fights in high school because of it. Uh, I went to a high school with mostly white ki- kids that were rich, because um, uh, while we lived in a pretty poor neighborhood, my grandma felt that we should go to Catholic uh, private school, um, and so she paid for our tuition to that. Um, but it was a total disaster, and I dropped out. Um, <clears throat> so, so being native was, you know, it was uh, what I would tell people when asked. But it was always a confusing thing because uh, the biracial experience is never a clear path. What kind of stories? I kind of know the answer to this, but still I ask you. Uh, what kind of stories were you told uh, by your father, identity-wise? Well, he was raised by uh, his great-grandparents. Um, one of the stories I heard most often was... a. Uh, It's a Sand Creek massacre. 
It's one of the most famous massacres, I don't know how, infamous massacres, I guess, in U.S. history, um, uh, in which um, about 200 um, elders, women and children were um, at a camp and the men had gone to hunt and um, this private militia wasn't even official U.S. government. Um, they were like up all night drinking and um, they came in and they had the, what they called howitzers, which were basically just giant Gatling guns that you sort of crank. And uh, this camp had been told um, to fly a U.S. flag and a white flag. Um, and it was, according to agreements that had been made, was not supposed to be touched. But there were like all sorts of rogue militias that were out. There was the feeling like we need to get rid of these native people. And to be fair, you know, native people were attacking and raiding and it was a, it was a contentious relationship. But there had been this thing established that uh, you don't attack these camps. And you, if you just look and it's all women and children and elders, if you're, you know, if you're a decent human being, you'd, but uh, those were the times and these were the people and they slaughtered everyone um, in a really horrific way. I kind of go over it. In the, so my dad told us this story, mm. um, not because um, he's morbid or um, he wants to um, make us have nightmares, um, but be, in his spirit of... Uh, but you did maybe... Uh, I had other issues that were giving me nightmares. <laughs> we were raised Christian evangelical. Mm. Um, so I thought the end of the world was coming yeah, uh, constantly. Yeah. Other kinds of nightmares. <laughs> Worse nightmares. I mean, it was it was kind of an end of the world for native people at the time. Mm. I mean, you're you're down to your small camp, then you've already been moved from another place, and crazy people are encroaching on you with guns that they said sound like buffalo, like hordes of buffalo is how his, my dad told the story how his grandma told it. Um, so he told that story. He told weird stories about owls throwing rocks at him. Um, he told a bunch of different stories, but he was also really quiet about stuff because there was a lot of pain. Um, so there was an absence when it came to what does it mean? And he didn't teach us the language. Um, so it was always that mix of um, hearing, you would hear something and it would jump out at you and you'd realize you come from something pretty intense and then it would be quiet and we'd be mm. just watching TV together. Mm. Yeah, because that was my question. If this, hearing these stories and other stories to some extent, is that, if that was enough for you to, in order to form some kind of uh, we or us feeling during childhood? Well, I think having a close connection with my dad and how closely connected he is. Um, and then he would take us back to see our relatives in Oklahoma. Um, every chance, every school break we had, we would go back. And so, and that was from when I was, before I can remember. So I never ha felt like um, it was an abstract uh, ancestral thing that is a story in the family and, uh, and I would one day try to find my way to the connection. I always felt like, well, this is part of who we are and I can see that clearly and I'm meeting my great grandma, Laura, who 
It was said to have cured arthritis by touching the television while a televangelist was preaching. Because um, Jesus is alive and well in the native communities. Um, um, so it was, it, was, it was a real thing, but it was like my mom's white and comes from this very different background. And I belong to both, but both don't really belong to each other. And I'm supposed to somehow make sense of that. Mm. So it was more of that. So you got the, the, the strong feeling that there was uh, an intense story or intense stories uh, somewhere in, in, the, in the past. But what, at what time did you start to explore those stories to uh, accumulate knowledge uh, linked to the, to the stories? Uh, so, like I said, um, I was telling that cheerful story about the end of the world being imminent in my childhood and having nightmares all the time. Mm. Um, what, by the time I was like 18, I started going to ceremonies. So my parents met in um, what's called Native American Church, which is a peyote ceremony. So it's in a teepee and people eat peyote and they stay up all night um, singing and praying. And um, um, That's how they met and my mom Uh, partly having to do with, I mentioned my grandma, great-grandma Laura touching the TV and getting her arthritis cured. Uh, my mom got saved in front of the TV in Oklahoma. Um, and so um, so my dad, uh, after I, I had gone to ceremonies after I turned 18, and I had totally abandoned the fear of evangelical Christianity, um, So I started going into ceremony and, um, you know, eating peyote and uh, seeing your native dad run a ceremony and being a part of that does something kind of crazy to you. Um, and that was impactful. Mm. Um, but I didn't, like, dive deep. In, I was very wary of religion and... Um, You know, the name of Jesus is invoked in the ceremony, even though it's a little different in that context. It's sort of like a totemic or like a, uh, some kind of word that transcends the actual Jesus. Um, because Jesus was like slammed down people's throats and, and forced onto native people for many, many years. And so they found, many people found their way to adapt it. So my dad grew up, um, and his grandparents grew up practicing uh, sweat ceremonies, peyote ceremonies, and Sunday Baptist church, mm. and all thought of it as one thing. Um, so Jesus is in the teepee with peyote, and that's confusing for me, because I'm like trying to get over him. Mm. And <laughs> it's like his name is being invoked. Mm. Um, but so I started, uh, you know, getting involved there and and then my uh, my dad got um level four lymphoma in the lungs and he had like a pretty sizable growth um so what what they do in in this way is uh, have four ceremonies for themselves so i went to the first one my whole family went out um my mom at this point had, start, had turned a corner on Christi christian evangelical religion and uh She remarried this old hippie who was part of this old peyote commune, mm. and she was starting to move back toward uh, Native American church. Uh, she now is fully back, and she has a teepee in her backyard. And um, 
So we went out there and I was part of this ceremony where um, my dad got healed of, of this level of cancer that's like, at that point, mostly it's a death sentence. Mm -hmm. But he went back to the doctor after this ceremony and it was gone and the doctor was like, bring me to this ceremony because, <laughs> you know, in his experience, this just doesn't happen. So for me, I, um, it timed out with, uh, I'd just fallen in love with fiction and with reading and wanting to write and feeling very far behind. Um, so I l quit my job and moved to New Mexico to be around the ceremony, my dad, and to devote all my time to waiting tables and reading and writing. Um, so it was at that point where things got, uh, the stakes sort of went up on, on my relationship to my dad and being native and what is this ceremony and, you know, that was kind of when things took a turn. And also when I started taking writing seriously for the first time. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, when you look back at that now, what do you think about what happened then? Do you kind of... How do you conclude? Uh, what do you mean by conclude in this context? Yeah, when it comes to, to the, the, the effect of the ceremony or, or the... Oh, it's it's still crazy. I mean, there's this crazy thing. I don't mind telling you. It's not... Sometimes people don't like to talk about ceremony. Um, this aspect of it is not necessarily part of the ceremony. This is... Uh, this is something that happened. So before we went into the ceremony, I'm, I'm adding this because um, it was part of what convinced me to go. Um, my sister had these really important, uh, my older sister had these important earrings for her. And she really wanted them to go into the ceremony. Uh, somebody, I think, made them for her. And she just, one of these things that you want. If you're going to a ceremony, you think your dad's going to die and you want him not to. Um, she only had one, and she asked me, and I was like, I don't know. <clears throat> I haven't seen earrings. I don't, I'm not a detailed person. Uh, I wouldn't even notice if you had just one on. So at some point in the ceremony, so she had been crazy in the church, the evangelical church, mm. and had uh, proselytized and become part of the youth ministry and saw her speak in tongues, just like I did my mom, um, she had had this thing where her arm would like heat up or shiver or something. And people in the church told her uh, she's a healer. Um, I'd never seen any of that in the church contest. But, um, but that night, um, somewhere in the middle of the night, she, um, she just gets up. And the way the ceremony goes, you're supposed to, you're supposed to move this way. You don't move against it. She just got up in the middle of it and walked over to my dad <clears throat> said, where is it? And he pointed to his neck and they had found some here too. So she touched it in both places and came and sat down next to me and then she threw up. And, um, and I'm just like, you know, just trying to focus. And I'm, do I'm in my own trip. Um, and then I feel a nudge and I look over and she points down and she pulls out the earring from the throw up. <laughs> I don't know how that makes sense. <laughs> um, but it was somehow all connected. And then, you know, and then my dad, so in a way, like my, my dad from then on sort of attributed uh, his healing to her. Because there was that moment where 
I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm not really like a woo-woo thinker. It's like a, um, I don't know if you guys have heard woo-woo before, but I'm sure you get it in this context. Uh, I'm pretty pragmatic and a cynic, even having grown up with crazy um, parents. A cynic, even. Yeah. yeah. But there's certain things that are, you know, they sort of push you beyond being able to keep your cynicism and... Uh, that was one of the things that moved me to... So in retrospect, what do I think of that time? I think, you know, it, it was it was a crazy timing having to do with, um, you know, like I said, with my son and taking things more seriously. Mm. That was... I was then just, like, partying with my friends. Yeah. And I was, I was becoming a reader. Um, and I was... This is another part of my life. I was playing roller hockey, which I'd been doing since I was 14. Mm. And that was the only thing I was serious about. I was just now starting to get into reading, but I had a, this long, it's ten year. Mm. Um, so, so the thing you mentioned about your son was more like a growing up thing or becoming an adult thing yeah. than a. Now it's my time to tell him the stories. It wasn't really that. Um, it was. Uh, it was also like if I'm going to provide for a family, mm. and and um, actually like be fulfilled in what I do. Can I do it with something that I love? Let me try. Um, it wasn't just like a, let me go become a banker and make sure I can financially support. I wanted to be, like, be a human that could be proud of what they do mm. and provide at the same time, which is a lofty goal and maybe even naive, but that's how I felt. Mm. The Swedish title, Pow Wow, obviously makes sense. Um, did you have the sense that the novel was going to end up and point towards a powwow uh, the whole time uh, writing it? Yeah, that, I mean, that was the initial seed mm. that I thought of on the way down to L.A. Um, so it, when I was writing it, I was always... It was a guiding light. Um, I would say light at the end of the tunnel, but it, it sort of doesn't end well. So. <laughs> At what time did you attend the powwow for the first time yourself, and what impression did it make on you? I went to a powwow when I was like five. My dad grew up dancing powwow, and um, as I was saying, he didn't always share all of the cultural stuff. Uh, he was an engineer at the Lawrence Berkeley Labs. He was a nuclear engineer. Uh, he was he's a very complex guy. Mm. <laughs> um, so he took us to a powwow uh, like an hour from where I live now and all I remember is like a lot of red dust floating in the air and the sort of uh, refuge of uh, shady orchards um, that's the only experience I remember from that powwow and then he took us to one after my parents divorced randomly at this um, Berkeley gymnasium high school gymnasium I remember getting Indian tacos this is fry bread it's uh, like I don't know how many people know. It's like um, tortilla, sopapilla, beignet. There's all these different non-fried bread. It's, everyone does something. Um, so he took us to this um, powwow at the Berkeley Gymnasium, and um, the this guy, one of the Brown, in the Brown family, um, who I'd known growing up, we were always like getting in arguments about whose dad was better. Um, he was a powwow dancer now, and he was now also a lot bigger than I remembered him. But he was, as big as he was, he was so light on his feet. Um, this was like this dancer's gravity 
that I reference in the book mm. at, at some point. Um, just so graceful. And I later was in a, a peyote ceremony with him, and his voice was like angelic and high and not like his speaking voice. Just like, you know, he had all these, this beauty in him I never saw until later. Um, so to me, that was my first powwow. Uh, and I, don't, I was a teenager. Um, the one when I was five, I don't really count. Um, but then I went on to work in the Native community, and I was on a powwow committee where we'd have way too many meetings where we were just like ordering a lot of catering and eating and not talking about the powwow. Um, and eventually putting it on, and uh, and then went to the many small powwows that happened in the in Oakland and the Bay Area, none of which are um, close to what I describe, but there are powwows throughout the country that are big, like. So you have quite uh, a few, or you have a lot of real experience that is put into the organizers in, in yeah. this novel. Yeah. Yeah. Is it fair to say that all of the characters? have uh, struggles connected to their identity project, you'd say. Yeah, I, yeah, in, in different ways. Like uh, some character might want more and another character who's experienced a sort of a trauma because of the culture wants less. So like the grandmother, Opal, um, tries to protect her sons from getting too involved in this sort of jump toward culture because of her experience of being brought to prison island with her mom and having to sleep in jail cells, and then her mom ultimately dies. Um, that's not a spoiler. It happens fairly early on. Um, yeah, where do the spoilers begin, you'd say? <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> what should we not talk about, or what could we easily talk about? I think the end stuff, maybe. Is the, the end stuff. <laughs> um, but, yeah, everyone... Uh, as I've seen and I've, as I've experienced, um, when you're when you're native in the U.S. and and in many other places, uh, what it means to be an authentic native person mm -hmm. is often you're you're this type of native, um, which is like a feathered, probably old, probably wrinkled, probably forlorn, probably looking off. Uh, maybe you're a silhouette on a horse, um, which horses weren't even here for most of native life it came with Europeans have you ever googled what is a real Native American like I, th I did somewhere after I wrote it I wrote that um, one of my characters googled it and then I googled it to see what the real answers were yeah. <laughs> um, so there is automatically a, a sort of stick to be measured by and you can either resist that or try to meet it. And you can grow long hair and wear native jewelry. Um, I could, uh, you know, pull a necklace out and make, this could add a little adornment that makes me seem, um, or I can not. And there's always that relationship uh, as close or as far as you are from, from this outside qualification of what it means. The English title is uh, There, There. Could you tell us a little about the, uh, what that is about uh, and how it is linked to, the, uh, to Oakland uh, uh, and why Oakland plays such an important role in the book? So I was born and raised in Oakland, and um, when I was going to write uh, an Oakland novel about Native people living in Oakland, I was curious about who had done it, 
and uh, very soon found out that not very many people. Uh, there's very little on, uh, as far as literature goes, on urban native life. And when it comes to Oakland, we have Jack London, who's writing about wolves in the wild, and Gertrude Stein, who says, who's basically only quote about Oakland is, I don't want to write about Oakland. Because <laughs> there is no Oakland for me. <laughs> You're dead to me, Oakland. Um, this is the there is no there there. Now, it's been sort of misused by gentrifiers who move into Oakland. Uh, I've heard it contextually used as her saying, Oakland has no soul. Oakland has no mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. So it's a very convenient quote to misuse if you're moving into a place that seems dead or empty. Mm. Well, I'll fill it with who I am. Mm. I'm great. Um, but what she meant was she grew up in her childhood in Oakland, left and came back, and where she grew up was developed over. And so there was no, she was saying there's nothing to, there's no longer there, what I related to. When I read it, when I was researching uh, who who's talking about Oakland, who was writing about Oakland, it immediately rung true or resonated with me for Native experience. Um, so Native people in cities trying to relate to their environment and feel like they belong to it, and this is home, um, trying to find the there there of that. And Native people in general, uh, having been developed over, essentially, and trying to still make this home and to feel like uh, we belong. If we are Native American, then, then the land that we're on, no matter where we are, is our Native home. Mm -hmm. and, and even if it's been, been developed over, trying to make sense of that. So um, when I read that quote, I knew it was going to end up in the title somehow and be a deep thematic uh, thread. Uh, didn't know quite how until like 2014 finally uh, realized to, how to get mm. out of that quote just uh, something that sounded like a title mm. does uh, Oakland have a soul yes for sure M many souls many souls you mentioned the uh, occupation at Alcatraz in 1970 um, I wondered if you could read a little part Sure. From the island, mm -hmm. you suggested a small piece. Could you give it? Uh, give us a little context on it. Yeah. So, Opal Veal of Victoria Bearshield is the name of one of the central characters. Um, maybe even the hub around which mm. most of the characters sort of gravitate. Um, the third chapter. Um, she is uh, from 1969, November 1969 to um, sometime in 1972, I can't remember which month, um, Native people took over Alcatraz and uh, Credence Clearwater um, donated a boat, a motorboat to them and um, Marlon Brando was, you know, a voice at the time and um, there was a lot of support for what was happening there. A lot of people running supplies back and forth between San Francisco, the pier, uh, Ghirardelli Square area, Pier 39, and uh, these are not important details. So <laughs> Opal Villa, Victoria Bearshield, uh, was sort of with her sister, Jackie Redfeather, different last names because they have different fathers, same mother. They end up on this island. Um, 
so she's trying to figure out what it means to be on this island. She brings her her teddy bear, Two Shoes, named Two Shoes because uh, Jackie's her, her older sister. Uh, teddy bear was named uh, was a different name, but only had one shoe. So Jackie suggested that the bear was named Two Shoes, even though the other bear wasn't named One Shoe. Um, this is one of Opal's complaints. Um, so we come to a point where her mom's like, go find Jackie because Jackie's a teenager and she's looking for, uh, she's, her mom's looking for Jackie and wanting to know where she is. Jackie's running around with other teenagers on the island. Um, Opal's just a little bit under being a teenager. So sticking by her mom's side, mom tells her to go find your sister. Um, and you'll see where Two Shoes comes in. At some point, my mom told me to go out and see what Jackie was up to. I didn't want to go out there alone, but eventually I got bored enough and went to see out what I could fi- uh, see what I could find. I took two shoes with me. I know I'm too old to have him. I'm almost 12, but I took him anyway. I went down to the other side of the lighthouse where it seemed like you weren't supposed to go. I found them by the shore closest to the Golden Gate. They were all over the rocks, pointing at each other and laughing in that wild, cruel way teenagers have about them. I told Two Shoes it probably wasn't such a good idea that we should go, and we should just go back. Sister, you don't have to worry. All these people, even these young ones over here, they're all our relatives, so don't be scared. Plus, if anyone comes after you, I'll jump down and bite their ankles. They would never expect that. I'll use my sacred bear medicine on them. It'll put them to sleep. It'll be like instantaneous hibernation. That's what I'll do, sister, so don't worry. Creator made me strong to protect you, Two Shoes said. I told Two Shoes to stop talking like an Indian. I don't know what you mean by talking like an Indian, he said. You're not an Indian, T.S. You're a teddy bear. You know we're not so different. Both of us got our names from pig brain men. Pig brain? Men with pigs for brains. Oh, meaning Columbus called you Indians. For us, it was Teddy Roosevelt's fault. (laughs) How? He was hunting a bear one time, but then found this real scraggly old hungry bear and refused to shoot it. Then in the newspapers, there was a comic about that hunting story that made it seem like Mr. Roosevelt was merciful, a real nature lover, that kind of thing. Then they made the little stuffed bear and named it Teddy's Bear. Teddy's Bear became Teddy Bear. What they didn't say was that he slit that old bear's throat. It's that kind of mercy that I want you to know about. And how do you know any of this? You got to know about the history of your people, how you got to be here. That's all based on what people done to get you here. Us bears, you Indians, we've been through a lot. They tried to kill us. But then when you hear them tell it, they make history seem like one big heroic adventure across an empty forest. There were bears and Indians all over the place. Sister, they slit all our throats. The Teddy Roosevelt hunting story, did you... 
Did you research that? I was actually I heard it on a podcast. Okay. <laughs> I guess you could call it research. It took some time actually before I understood that the stories of the different characters were intertwined to such an extent. We might approach the not talk about part now. I understand, but uh, but Jackie uh, is an important character too, and we meet her later in the book at a congress or a convention. Mm -hmm. uh, could you tell us a little about the, the topics uh, at the convention and and um, the reason she is there and the devel development of her character in that setting? So, I, I, as I said, I worked in the um, the native community in Oakland and. Part of uh, grant requirements, when you get these grants, um, you were required to go to conferences. And so the role that I was in, I went to a conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, and um, there was a suicide theme, um, and there was a native guy with a plastic water bottle flicking water out into the crowd and uh, it was an Indian casino and there was crazy um, shapes from corrugated metal on wild chandeliers and it was just like a, it was a scene um, that ended up in Jackie's chapter. Um, you know, this is where I. This is why I like fiction because I was using these realities. Um, because in the chapter, Jackie experiences this guy talking at the conference about suicide and how um, the problem has been addressed over the past ten years by nonprofits and grants have been made by the federal government in upwards of four million dollars. I was a part of a million dollar, three million dollar grant um, to try to help the problem of youth suicide, which is the highest number of any population in the U.S. Um, since this has happened, um, the numbers have actually gone up. Mm. Um, as if the millions are, you know, making that happen. Um, so the guy who talks is a youth who, uh, or it, He's an ex-prisoner, um, an ex-convict, and he's talking about his history and he's talking about knowing these systems and how people come in and write grants to get big money to pay big salaries. And this is something that I witnessed in the nonprofit that I was in. I would help put these grants together and I would watch the actual programming be so sad. Um, like seriously, like you're getting millions of dollars and you're giving yourself, I knew the salaries because uh, native people gossip a lot and people that shouldn't have been telling me salaries were telling me. Mm. People that were getting the, these major grants were paying themselves uh, six figure uh, salaries and the actual programming that's supposed to be helping native youth uh, to prevent youth suicide was a joke. So this guy, sort of speaks on that mm. and then Jackie remembers something that's, you know, this is where it diverts to fiction. This wasn't me. Uh, and Jackie kind of goes into memory and so this is one of the ways that uh, my own experience blends with the fabricated character and 
so I know what it feels like for certain parts. And then, you know, she struggles with um, a 10-day sobriety that she's a substance abuse counselor who is, has 10 days sober and is a major alcoholic. So um, there's a lot of substance abuse counselors uh, in in a lot of different fields who are addicts themselves, and it's sort of how they know. Um, some further away from sobriety than others. Mm. So when we, you were going to talk about the, the difficult topics, uh, like suicide and alcoholism, um, you chose to do it in different ways, of course, in the novel, uh, but through this character who, who, who talks about it uh, on stage. But could you expand a little on um, on how you, you treat alcoholism in, in the book? Well, um, I'm talking about my dad again. Um, How important is it for for this book, so to speak? It's a it's an issue uh, in a different chapter. Another Jackie at the same chapter. Another part of that same chapter. Um, this guy who I guess this is spoiler territory, so I won't say who he is. But this guy talks about alcohol and the special relationship it's been placed on Indians and alcohol. Mm. Um, and he says there's no special relationship. This is what's cheap, legal, and easily available for people who are coping with some major structural systemic effects of uh, major policies and actual you know, violence and stripping away of culture and language things that this government has done that leave people bereft of of resources that they would previously have relied upon to to not be needing to cope um boarding schools and all these different things that um kill the indian save the man was the us government slogan so people trying to cope with with life life of poverty and um, if it's right there and it makes you feel better, it, it could have been anything. If heroin was easy, it would have that would have been the thing. Crystal meth is actually more dominant now than alcohol in native communities. It's way more destructive. Um, so I I have him explain that in that same chapter. Um, and other characters struggle. And you know, my dad's a recovering alcoholic, and um, my sister struggled immensely with bipolar disorder and alcoholism uh, and in a way that's affected our whole family. Um, so while it's a stereotype um, and while I try to deconstruct the stereotype, it's also the reason I wrote about it is because I've been affected by it. And this is the way uh, I think writing and art can happen is uh, you work through the stuff that you've experienced in ways to try to transcend uh, the struggles you've been through by by writing about them. The risk is a little bit uh, high when you touch on stereotypes, but the whole book is touched by stereotypes in a way that I tried to do in a wasn't a, a tropish or trite way, but a way that had a layered lens to it. It's like we know this is here. But here, how it's not, how it, there's no way to avoid it, um, and here, how we also resist it. 
I think that any person with even the slightest um, identity struggle will find this book uh, incredibly interesting. But what, if we talk about the, the people, so to speak, that you, you, you've written about, uh, how does the book resonate with them? That's been the biggest uh, relief of all, is uh, the native community, both in Oakland and um, around the whole country, has been very enthusiastic, embracing, and celebratory. And some of the most joyful responses have been from native people. Um, people who have been through it uh, are seeing themselves reflected for some of the first times. Um, some other responses from people who have different experiences are like, God, it's so sad. <laughs> and, uh, and that's fair, um, because it is. Um, but people who live these lives don't think of their lives as sad. So to see themselves reflected is actually, um, it feels good. Like, to see yourself reflected in, in a way that, in a piece of art or in a piece of uh, something that's being widely seen, sometimes just being acknowledged, it can do a lot of work. And so to feel like you're, you're being seen can do more than uh, some kind of retribution or, um, I don't know, trying to fix things. Sometimes just acknowledging is everything. Okay, yeah. So that's what you do. You acknowledge it and you start off with a prologue where you uh, address things that happened in 1622, for example. Um, some of the first atrocities that we know uh, detailed about, I guess. Uh, is that to suggest that there is a link between those early experiences for the we uh, and what happens today? I think it's the start of a rippling effect that um, that's not the right metaphor because a rippling uh, means there's one maybe heavy stone dropped and then mm. but the stones kept dropping yeah. and so what I try to do in the prologue is like show how it continued on and uh, you know the policies as recently as 1950 it was called Indian Termination Policy which then turned into Indian relocation, which was part of the kill the Indian, save the man. So genocidal thinking started in 1621, but continued on. Um, and even our president now, his favorite president is Andrew Jackson, and he was one of the worst to Indian people specifically. Um, and and he's doing things that are uh, reversing a lot of things that matter for native people. He's trying to steal, he's trying to land grab uh, native land to, and like protected national parks. Um, that's sacred land to drill or, you know, however he can benefit from it or how his cronies benefit from it. Uh, so I don't go all the way back in order to say that there's one thread that pulls more to say that this is where it started and then, you know, it's still going. Mm. So it's not deterministic in that sense. What has it 
done for you then to acknowledge is uh, acknowledge it as as you as you said. I think through writing it, they're, they're some, sometimes um, people think that being native comes with an innate or inherent sense of knowledge of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, we bring in this guy from Oakland to my son's school during Thanksgiving because my, uh, my son's school still teaches um, insane history lessons around that time. <laughs> Literally insane. Um, and so we don't want to like go at the bureaucracy and the the tangled um, mess of trying to change curriculum. Uh, we bring in a guy who's a powwow singer and a drummer. His family uh, is a powwow dancers, and he engages the kids, and he has them ask questions that are basically like the American unconscious. They're not asking for any reason other than like. This is what they've somehow, they don't, probably don't even know how they know it. But they'll ask him, like, why is the grass sometimes green and sometimes yellow? Uh, why is there uh, daylight and then nighttime? Um, why don't you live in a teepee? Um, just all these things that have to do with, like, this thinking that Native people are inherently uh, born with the knowledge of Earth. Or... Um, or not. Or... <laughs> or sort of historical, or in other cases, when it comes to academic circles, we know everything about every tribe and everything about our own tribe. Mm. And uh, as if we're born with that, or as if if we don't have that, we're not legitimate. Mm. Um, so I lost track of the question. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you're not going to say anything really profound about rivers or anything like that now. <laughs> But belonging to, you have a certificate linked to at least one tribe, right? Uh, certificate degree, degree of Indian blood. Yeah. It's an it's a actual certificate. There's a physical thing. Mm. Uh, it's called the Certificate Degree of Indian Blood. Mm. And each uh, tribe has a different um, fraction that you need to have to certify that you can be enrolled in the nation. So... I have a certificate degree of Indian blood. It's an insane thing. Mm. Um, yeah, what does it mean to you? Well, it's a sad thing because my dad's full. But on his certificate degree of Indian blood, he's half because his dad didn't accept him as a son because it was a product of an extramarital affair. Mm. So he's half Cheyenne and half nothing makes me ha a quarter shine, quarter nothing. Um, makes my son ineligible to be a member of our tribe. Now, my dad could fix it, um, and I've asked him to, but here's the catch, and he's always thinking in fractions and mathematical, he's an engineer. <laughs> he said, well, this is the thing. Uh, the way I got it worked out, uh, you're 364th short of being half Cheyenne. <laughs> by way of, he's a 132nd German, um, and also 116th Lakota Sioux from various different, you know, these, the way these things happen. So I'm 364 short. My son's whatever, two times 364ths is short of being one quarter. And um, it's ridiculous, but 
when it comes to how my son will identify and uh, his mom is half Chinese, half white. So that double 364 short um, means, will mean a lot because he can't enroll. And when it comes to identification, um, he's got all these different things going on. He can't enroll in our nation as a citizen. Um, what's that going to mean when he's 18 um, and he's around all these other kids who have all these other mixes? Uh, it's, you know, it's the end of a, it's the end of a people and the, the blood quantum situation is, is sort of a doomed situation. Hmm. So the book leaves some of your readers sad uh, and to what extent does the this story leave you sad or probably optimistic about the future of, of natives in america i i do have a sense and i tried to infuse a sense of hope in the whole thing um when i was finishing it you know i was watching on national tv which you'd never see native people on national tv um, it happened in the occupation of Alcatraz and then Dances with Wolves and then the Standing Rock um, protest. Um, and around that, uh, there were artist, little artistic renaissances, which some people are saying this is a part of, um, comes to national attention and then people want to know what's going on. I would hope that it's more sustainable than news events. But... Um, I have hope and I have a president who's who he is and I, I sort of feel like he's going to go another four years so um, I have a tempered hope um, in ways I feel like uh, having him as a president has sort of exposed wounds necessary to look at and try, to try to address whether we do or not, I'm not so sure. Um, how much he, you know, spits on them while they're exposed. Um, and what he ends up doing is very unpredictable. Um, so I have every reason to doubt and few reasons to hope. And I'm choosing to have enough hope to not uh, go kill myself. <laughs> That's an uh, interesting uh, place to to end the conversation. <laughs> uh, but I'm I totally agree with Colm Toybin. It's really really good. Thank you for thank you. coming and thank you for talking to us. Thank you.